This episode is an attempt by me to explain how I think about geopolitics and how countries or governments act and behave. It should be applied to the past, or it could be applied to the past. It could and should be applied to the present as well as the future. Disclaimer though, I am publishing this at the start of 2022, January 2022 to be precise, so I can only know what I know to this point and its current state now. Also make sure to listen to the end of this episode to know what I think the most important areas for the world are. With all that out of the way, this episode will still be relevant to you regardless of when you are listening. If you are listening at or close to January 2022, then some of the information here can act as something of a benchmark to know where we're at. If you're listening in the future, well, then you have something of a snapshot of life in January 2022. A bit of a blast from the past. Geopolitics is something that I have tackled before. If you're interested in foreign policy and international relations, this episode is also for you. Do not forget to check out my take on international borders in episode 44, episode 43 on migrations and settled peoples, episode 41 on the Crusades, 39 on Iran, 35 on regime change, 34 on the Third World, 32 on war, 30 on the rise and fall of great powers, and episode 8 on the art of diplomacy. To me, international relations, foreign policy, and history are all mixed and all remarkably interesting. Many decisions, many, many decisions indeed, are made by people who think they are clever and have big egos that help them believe that they are right. It is my objective here to help you break it down. I better to break down geopolitics and the way I look at the world and certain categories within it. Now, however, before I outline my categories, I want to tell you that I actually do not believe in the calendaring system or the year or the date, or whatever that is. To me, that is just hogwash to think that January 2022 or January 2029 or February 1633 is a thing. Like 2022 years since Jesus means anything. It does not. But, okay, I use it because it's a measure. It's a measure. And it's what people, you, understand. So I'll use it. But just know this, that I think that the dating system and calendar system is the ultimate in fake news. All right, that's my rant over. So how do I read the world? To keep it easy, I shall break this down into a bunch of categories. Don't worry, you don't need to take notes. The first category is outer space. You know, the final-ish frontier out there. Second one is the environment. And no, not just climate change. Nope. This means the climate around us, such as food, 
medicines, water, utilities, natural resources, the climate, and human resources as well. Then there are supply chains, industries, jobs, continents or regions, people, nations, countries, civilizations, other groups. Then threats or upcoming changes could be included here too. But let's let's start in space. Humans, though we can be, you know, humane, are ultimately physical, biological entities that have a knack for destruction. If you're an alien species and you want to keep the universe safe, then at some point you'll want to send the species back to the Stone Age or snuff it out completely. Why? Because this otherwise planet-bound species is throwing stuff made on this planet that they inhabit out beyond the planet itself. Humans call it spaceships. In all seriousness, space is not a new form of geopolitics. Ever since the USSR sent the first satellites into space and then the first human in 1961, seen by episode 27, this human race started a space race. The space race brought pioneering, from the perspective of the humans at least, launches of artificial satellites, robotic space probes to the Moon, Venus, and Mars, and ultimately human spaceflight, both in low Earth orbit and ultimately to the Moon. Humans have worshipped the Moon, the Sun, and planets. Humans also gave the stars names. Now space has become the new frontier in geopolitics. The priority right now is the low orbit around the Earth. Then it is the conquest of the moon, followed by the occupation of Mars. The goal may be to use Mars and the moon to expand the species beyond the realms and bounds of the physical constraints of the planet. Humans have looked up to the stars and have done so since the origin of the species. As of now, the Soviet Union, including Russia, Kazakhstan and the Ukraine, have been in space. That was in 1957. The United States, 1958. France and the EU, 1965. Japan, 1970. China, 1970. United Kingdom, 1971. India, 1980. Israel, 1988. And Iran, 2009. Technically, Germany became the first spacefaring nation in 1944 with the V2 rocket, but no humans were on board. But it does give you an idea about what happens if you own space. The impact on Earth is pretty profound. The International Space Station remains a thing, but a thing of the past. It has become increasingly irrelevant because from a geopolitical standpoint, as China and later India, they have new space programs of their own. The US is using private capabilities from companies such as SpaceX to push for its technology into space, including Wi-Fi. The US also launches secret military programs of its own. 
We know Russia and China, as well as the U.S., also has a spy capability in space. Right now, the U.S. and China have rovers on Mars, and the U.S. has sent probes into deep space. If you control space, you can get weapons and satellites across to the enemy faster. The idea is also to control what's out there. Countries don't exist on Earth. Since they are born out of human imaginations. And they're even more nebulous in space. The interest in space isn't necessarily to explore new worlds, although that is a interesting factor of it, but to compete at home and to get strategic advantage against someone else here on the Earth. My next category is the environment. For the environment, I want to break it down into food, water, air, utilities, medicines, natural resources, starting with food. Since ancient times, food and its attainment has been one of the main objectives of existence. Food security is, for many, not a concern. Even very poor people in rich countries have access to food, as do rich people in poor countries. They too have access to food. Some individuals in rich countries and poor countries have access to an abundance of food, so much so that obesity is a common problem. Instant food is a real thing. So you may feel secure, but that relies on something called supply chains and the Japanese work practice of just-in-time supply. There is an entire network of supplies so that you can eat foods not natural in your neighborhood. Eat nicely cut and cleaned meats and dairy in nicely branded boxes. The source of food remains farms. Vegetables, meats, dairy products all come from sustainable farming methods, new technologies and the weather. It also involves food processing facilities, transportation and so on. That's why someone in London can eat a Caribbean banana for breakfast and a Mexican avocado at lunch while enjoying Sri Lankan Ceylon tea. Food security is critical. It is so critical that people will do anything to keep that banana and that avocado flowing to the supermarket shelves. Yes, the tea is pretty critical too. Food shortages can and will cause carnage. If you are well-to-do with regular access to whatever food you want, letting you leave food on a plate because, you know, you took too much or didn't like it, that wastage of food is a relatively new concept. Your government ultimately will do anything to keep you hooked on that lifestyle. One of the main instruments of war is a blockade, a siege, or what we in modern times called sanctions. The idea is to cut supply chains to impacted countries. Go see my episode 46 on sieges and sanctions. Anyway, speaking of supply chains, medicines run on supply chains too. Again, countries will do a lot, anything, to combat medicine shortages. What the 2020 to 2022 plus years COVID crisis showed is that only a handful of countries can develop 
and then mass produce medicines. Then, of course, other than the meds themselves are the raw materials. Outside food and medicines is water security. Most settlements have rivers, lakes, or some other natural water supply. Water security is critical. Humans have a knack of building something like aqueducts or amazing plumbing in and out of settlements, but also have a way to wreck by dumping all kinds of waste into freshwater rivers, lakes, and even oceans. Rivers change course, mostly naturally, but then humans also build dams. Dams have the ability to generate electricity, but they also have the ability to cause downstream problems. That is why rivers and dams alongside freshwater supplies are a major geopolitical concern. Speaking of plumbing and supplies, that means utilities. Control of utilities, including the internet and even search engines, will be paramount. That's also why anyone who can hack a system will hack a system, and they will try to control or own the infrastructure so that they can spy on you. If your government is big and rich, it is doing all of that while complaining that others are hacking them. The risks here are tremendous. In the old days, you'd need to infiltrate a country or bomb them to hell. Today, a few clicks can disable energy grids. It is alleged that during the tense 2021 border standoff between India and China, the Chinese actually shut down Mumbai's electrical grid system. Every day you hear about someone being hacked. Hacking someone is very easy. The biggest prize is, however, hacking not just simple stuff like utility companies, but hacking minds. Hacking the way you think. The US, Russia, and China are absolute masters at this. Every color revolution, every velvet revolution, and every so-called revolution for supposedly freedom is masterminded by the US government mind-hacking campaign. These are not easy and are often multi-year projects. Americans may or may not take my word for it, but the US 2020 election that resulted in the loss for Trump and the win for Biden was traditional CIA color revolution event. Over a period of five years, the US media, the citizenry, and anyone outside the US came to believe things about Trump that were largely untrue. That he worked with Russians, that he was Putin's agent, that he was a Nazi, etc. Leaks happened all the time. Leaks did not have to be true. It just had to be mentioned once before everyone would believe it was true. That's how these multi-year revolutions work. Your government, if big enough, is at it. Outside the US, China and Russia are big hackers too, and often they target the US itself. Unlike the US, their internet ecosystems are protected, or so they may think, behind controlled firewalls. Beyond hacking minds is the air. Yes, air. This is a nebulous entity that circulates around us, 
it is wrapped in the guise of climate change rhetoric. Richer countries, and indeed rich people, use this to own a narrative that often goes over the heads of poorer countries and poorer humans, even in rich countries. There is a real problem with the way people farm and farm lands and seas. Unless you're going to solve the issue of human mass population growth, you are not going to solve the climate problem. There is also a real problem with polluted land and air and water in cities like Delhi. Richer people and richer countries see final products, the finished boxed Samsung phone, the ready-made vegan sausage, the milkshake, the coffee. Someone else had to put that stuff together. It's not the rich and it's often not the rich countries that put it together. That's why rich people and rich countries are obsessed with climate change, while the rest of the population are working in jobs to get the products out and feed mouths. The geopolitical issue is that for the currently powerful, if you can tie people into containing the climate, they will also be forced to slow down their own development, thus keeping the rich richer, the poor poorer, and the powerful in power longer. Beyond that, there is natural resources. Natural resources is big, so big that wars have been fought for and over natural resources, not just today, but for centuries. It sort of ties all of the above together. It includes things like oil, natural gas, coal, lithium, rare earths, etc., etc. You name it a natural resource, ready to be extracted and used for fuel consumption. Unless nuclear or renewables are in force, your electric vehicle is running on coal. Natural resources keep supply chains going, and are the reason some supply chains even exist. Countries that have natural resources can be rich, such as the US, Saudi Arabia, Russia, or China but they can also be turned into a net negative experience by foreign powers, for example, Iraq and Venezuela. This leads us to the next topic, and I've touched on this a little bit before already, and that is supply chains. You see, all of these natural resources need to get somewhere, somehow, and it's trying to get other products also somewhere, somehow. If you are selling cars, you need the parts to get to a manufacturing facility. Then you pull a car together before you get them out to dealerships. The parts are manufactured in all sorts of places all over the planet. Who they, in turn, by the way, will need raw materials to get their parts built and designed. Often goods are crossing international borders multiple times before a new vehicle is up for sale. That is just for cars. Then there are airplanes, hammers, tables, computers, and food and drink. Keeping all of these things flowing is critical if you want petrol in your vehicle when you need it, food on your plate when you want it, and indeed a house or a job. Countries spend a lot of time and effort securing supply chains. China's entire Belt and Road Network initiative is about securing supply chains, getting goods in and out of the country to keep it moving. US too, it has an extensive network of military bases to make sure supply lines are served. This brings me to the next thing I want to talk about, 
the economy. The economy and its relative size equates to the wealth of the country, leading to relative power projection via its military and other funding. The economy and its relative strength makes or breaks you, jobs and industries, service, agriculture, manufacturing or technology, or whatever industry it is that creates jobs, or maybe you're in of these industries. Jobs is people activity for monetary exchange. When you work, you pay back the government, who then use it to pay themselves and for services they run technically for you, including military and security service power projection. For the country to be prosperous, recent history has shown that private enterprise works best. However, no country, not even the US, is fully capitalist. All countries are actually socialist, but it just depends how socialist one actually is. I know that that is a bold statement, but think about how big your government really is, how much tax you pay the government, not just income tax, tax for everything, including VAT or sales tax. Depending on where you live, you could be paying the government for up to half the year before you pay yourself. So a strong economy results in strong government institutions and stronger power projection and quick decision-making. Jobs are critical to your human, national, and international ecosystem. Now that we have the basics set up, let me turn attention to regions, the actual geo of geopolitics. I'm breaking this down into nations, countries, civilizations, multinational corporations, and even none of this. First off, all of what I just mentioned are human mental structures. Nations, countries, corporations. They are not in existence in what we think of as the real or natural world. Our brains are so ancient and tribal that we love associating with others. So we associate with groups. This could be anything from a local football club to a celebrity, or from a town to a country, or from a local charity to a religion. All these are constructed in our minds. Your nation, country, civilization, corporation, institution, religion are mental models not existing in reality. That being said, let's dive into these mental mindsets that don't technically exist in reality. Starting with nations. A nation is a community of people formed based on a combination of shared features such as language, history, ethnicity, culture, and or territory. A nation is thus the collective identity of a group of people understood as defined by those features. A nation is not an ethnic group. It is also not to be confused with a country. If anything, it's a nation that is the political manifestation of a bunch of ethnic groups that think they may have something in common to feel part of a bigger whole. That is unlike a tribe. Most people in a nation don't and will never know each other. That is not to say that some nations are equated with ethnic groups. They absolutely can be associated with ethnic groups. The Canadians called the pre-European inhabitants the first nations. These tribes could be considered nations and serve as a semi-decent example for what I am trying to argue. They were probably more nation pre-European arrival and less nation now. 
these days, those nations are so small population-wise that they're probably, at least in my book, considered tribe. There are others. Nations ultimately are a European concept that originated, in my opinion, following the French Revolution. That is where the idea of a singular people started to become part of the elite narrative. Because the old elite got replaced by a new one. Here's a question. Is India a nation? In India, then who are the Tamils or Punjabis? It's hard to say. It's wishy-washy. Maybe in 1789, France was a nation of a singular type-ish of peoples. Today, not so much. More the opposite, in fact. The nation in January of 2022, as it always has been, remains fragmented. France became arguably, technically, the first nation state. Now, that is a term to consider. State or country. A nation state is a political unit where the state and nation are in technical harmony of sorts. A country is considered a distinct territorial body. Again, it is also a political entity. So what is this state or country? In my humble view, this entity of state or country is a little bit more realish than, say, nation or civilization. If imposed properly, the state or country can be more real. Is the state of Israel real? It is ultimately a mental construct like all countries, but because they have such hard borders, the borders are so physical, that it is a physical and actual reality on a map. The same goes for the land border between North and South Korea, as well as the India border with most of Pakistan. But some borders are nebulous. U.S.-Canada border is endless miles of unguarded land. The Mexico-U.S. border is guarded, but people seemingly have been flowing those porous borders quite free. The border between Germany and the Netherlands, well, there isn't one. It's in the European Union. How much of a nation is someone if their borders are a straight line on a map? A country is not a nation. A country consists of nations, tribes, groups, and all sorts of things. It's actually a hodgepodge. All countries are a hodgepodge. For a country, these boundaries are life and death. The India-China border is very nebulous. They both dispute each other's claims, and this results often in skirmishes. Geopolitically, and for the sake of domestic politics, some lines cannot be crossed, and maps cannot be changed. Borders extend to land and sea. Check out my episode 44 on international borders if you wish to explore this more. But countries have interests, or to be more precise, country governments and militaries and intelligence agencies have interests. Those interests lead them to take action. China needed to have the South China Sea and North Korea as buffers to the US in Japan, South Korea and Taiwan just an example. The US 
needs European, African, Middle Eastern, and Japanese Korean bases to have what they call forward protection from sworn enemies, Russia, China. Then there are non-state actors. Technically, everything outside countries are such. However, the term was coined by a country government. It simply means decentralized, non-country political international entities, such as Al-Qaeda, for example. It also covers nebulous state-sponsored non-state actors. To complicate matters a little bit more, increasingly civilizations are becoming somewhat prominent. It, like non-state actors, crosses state boundaries. Western civilization, see my episode 43, is one such example. Then you might have Indic civilization, Slavic civilization, Sino civilizations, etc., etc., etc. I, however, find this a little bit more dubious than even nation and won't dig into this any more than what I've just mentioned to you now. So when I think of the world, I think in terms of multiple factors that impact events. People who run foreign policy, international relations are typically over-educated and posh elites, especially in the bigger, more powerful, richer countries. It also means they make mistakes. It also means they are decent when they fake it till they make it, but fall short and it shows when you-know-what hits the fan. Every major crisis that we have in your country of choice, pick it, has muddled through is often in spite of elected or unelected officials. The financial crisis, COVID-19, wars, despite their often most elite education, the mistakes that elites make are monumental, meaning the mistakes will keep happening repeatedly. As an observer, to me, it's fascinating. If you look at the world in the way I describe, then apply that understanding to what is happening around you in the era and time you're in. It's pretty cool stuff. It can be applied to the past, the present, and the future. Now, in my present, the rise of China is an often talked about topic the uplift of millions from abject poverty, the amazing economic boom, the new wealth, the military spend, just so much in terms of benefits, with the main benefit to the world being no moral preaching and not using that preaching to invade other countries, like what Western countries do. But unlike Western countries, China in peacetime, which by the way is most of the time, acts as a bully boy to neighbors, it's arrogant in diplomacy, and they kill their own people, then try to cover stuff up. Everything has pros and cons. China has a pro and con, the US has a pro and con. China is not a Western country. It is not full of Latin Christians. So the most interesting thing is that for the first time in a long time, Latin Christianity has been threatened not by Orthodox Christians slash atheists, such as the Russians, but by a civilization completely at odd with Latin Christendom and every day learning to behave like a Latin Christian country. The worry is not that the US or Western civilization is in decline. It is bruised after Brexit, Iraq, Afghanistan, the financial crisis and COVID, but certainly not out. 
the Sino-Civilization is on a rapid ascendancy. Given what we know about human history, China isn't going anywhere, most likely unless we hit a major roadblock or some weird black swan event, China will get stronger. The only country that could tackle China is India. However, the Indian economy and political will often does not match election rhetoric. That's the point. India is in a major election every year. Some state or even national elections will be happening in the country at any given time. It means short-term populist policies win over long-term gains. You may argue that, sure, I'd rather live in a so-called freedom or free country than so-called dictatorship. And me personally, I do agree with that sentiment. I would rather live in a democracy. But health, infrastructure, jobs, education are also freedoms. And I also think that the Indian system is ultimately better placed to tackle challenges and adapt than the top-down Chinese model, which I think will have problems in the longer term and will struggle when crisis hits. I also do not think that the United States is in a hard decline state. It is in relative decline, sure, in that others are coming up. The US is also hampered by big government. Their debt crisis and overextended military bases plus activities do not help. They often annoy people by invading and killing them overtly or covertly. This is not a peaceful country and they assume everyone wants the same things that they have. That is untrue. The US needs to preserve its purge of powerful status by not screwing up its economy and making sure the US dollar stays the currency. However, both those are at serious risk following over a decade of dollar debasement. The only way for the US to stay where it is today is to make sure other countries have a vested interest in keeping it where it is. Japan, South Korea, India, Israel, Europe, and so on should be able to fund or keep the US going for a while longer as a major power. But like all good things, bubbles have a risk of bursting. Finally, I often ask myself what the most important parts of the world are when you look at things from a geopolitical perspective. Well, in my view, they are what they always have been, where almost everyone lives, and where civilization originally started, in no particular order. Firstly, Anatolia, modern Turkey, then I would say Egypt, the Levant, i.e. Lebanon, Syria, Israel, Jordan, Iraq, of course, Iran, which was ancient Persia, the Indic countries, India, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Bangladesh, but mostly India, and China. And that's it. That is what has been the earliest recorded human civilizations. Even today, everything happens and is centered around there. For the US or EU or Japan or anyone to be relevant, they need to be in those locations. However, with the independence of India, China, Turkey, Iran, Iraq, technically, it becomes harder to do so. The other areas outside the ones I just mentioned can become very unstable. The reality is that when you open up a map and uh, look at it, you're ultimately looking right in the middle, even though it, you shouldn't be. 
there are very important places elsewhere. There are lots of people living in Brazil, Mexico, the US. Russia is enormous. This whole of Africa, Indonesia, it's a ton of people and it's huge. But the reality is that the countries and territories, lands, regions, peoples that I just mentioned, Anatolia, Egypt, Levant, Iraq, Iran, India, China, this is where not just everyone lives, but these have always been the most important parts of the world. These are the geostrategic epicenter of the world. This is where everything happens. That is why everyone needs to be here. When something blows up in a place like India or Turkey, it is important. It's not so important if it's happening, unfortunately, Cuba, because it's less relevant. Countries and regions around that space, around the epicenter, are also important, but not as critical. Anyway, that has been this podcast. I hope you figured out alongside me how to understand geopolitics, who and how runs it, what it really is. It's confusing, I understand, but it's so interesting and so important. History is tied into it that it's very, 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 very important to understand what it means. And I urge you to think about it for yourself. Remember, countries do things in their interest, not in your interest. And it's often best to look at geopolitics from a completely independent viewpoint. Look at it completely as an outside observer. That helps you judge why things happen. It also helps you look at things going back in time. And it helps you predict what could happen in the future. Anyhow, enough rambling for one episode. Thank you a ton for taking the time to listen to the podcast. Thank you so very much. Thank you.